Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, we'll talk Robert Altman's Three Women. We'll play a game. We'll raise some money to try and keep the lights on at your favorite independent cinemas and film societies. And we start every episode by catching up on what we've been watching. It's been helping us keep sane during this insane time. We're going to start here with this week's guest. Davi Waller is the creator of Mrs. America, which is a fantastic, truly, miniseries starring Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly, Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem, and seemingly anyone who is anyone in Hollywood right now playing anyone who was anyone during the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. I've been watching all comfort food. I started binging Schitt's Creek um, after so many people said you have to watch it, and that is a perfect antidote to what's going on outside in the world. And I'm also watching Top Chef, which I'm a huge fan of. Fantastic. And I'm very excited that Insecure Season 4 is back on. So between those three shows, I feel like I'm wrapped in a cozy blanket in quarantine. We haven't seen as many movies, although one that I revisited and I really loved it and I really recommend it is Girlfriends. Oh, right. Which came out in 1978. And it's just such an amazing coming of age story and like woman in New York City and female friendship as uh, directed by Claudia Weil or Wheel. I hope I'm getting that right. I I can't recommend it enough. For some reason, it's not on a lot of people's radars, but it was this really incredible, intimate film that feels like it influenced a lot of later films by other female directors, you know, in the early aughts. Popped up on the Criterion channel, um, and I think they had a Criterion release last year. And when I put it on and really did love it, it, very quickly you say like, oh, this is where girls comes from. Like this yes! is- Yes, yeah. absolutely. I remember Lena talking about that film a lot um, when Girls was starting and also when she made her film Tiny Furniture. It is really wonderful to kind of see what a direct line there is there. I really enjoyed the movie from the jump, but I really fell in love with it uh, the moment she is revealed to be the bat mitzvah photographer. <laughs> I know. It's probably why I really had an affinity for it. I love a good Jewish celebration from Goodbye Columbus to Girlfriends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love seeing Jews around a buffet table. It's excellent. Um, my comfort this week, uh, besides Top Chef, we actually have a Top Chef fantasy league uh, where we draft chefs with a couple of other people. We are in second right now, and mm-hmm. we are really, really hoping that Gregory... Uh, really hangs in there. I feel like a lot of our fortunes are hanging on, on Gregory's success. I love uh, As him. the season goes on. Oh, I think wonderful. he's got a great chance. But on the movie side, um, ever since I noticed Stop Making Sense pop up on the top of the Criterion homepage, um, it has just become this movie that I have on a lot. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's the movie that I will cook dinner to. <laughs> Jonathan Demme's um, capturing of a tour of the Talking Heads uh, from 1984. This was a movie that I absolutely fell in love love with and almost sort of like defined my personality when I was in sixth grade when it first came out on VHS. A lot of young Nate DiMeo uh, can be seen drawing lessons from, you know, David Byrne. It sort of, you know, set the vision for what a nerdy boy could be. I've checked in with it over the years and, you know, at, at every turn, it just kind of reveals itself to be this kind of richer and richer work. You know, it just as I sort of just grow older and get more of the references and get more of the kind of aesthetic underpinnings, really kind of you know, become convinced that that tour, which is so beautifully put on film, you know, is really just kind of like one of the great like defining 
American artworks. I think it's wonderful. And so it's been great to kind of have around you know, while I wash the way too many dishes we're dealing with. Um, but the discovery for me this week, and I say this like totally knowing that the true movie buffs, you know, especially the classic film buffs, are going to be rolling their eyes the second I say that this is a discovery. Um, but this is totally a movie that until very recently I hadn't heard of at all. And I went in very cold, kind of by design, um, without looking into it too much, um, was Portrait of Jenny. Oh, Do you know yeah. this movie, guys? Tell oh, me more. Yeah. I knew this would be Karina Longroot bait. <laughs> well, Jennifer Jones, I'm I'm a I'm a big Jennifer Jones head and also a big Joseph Cotton head. I loved it. It's so funny to not want to spoil a movie from what is it, 1946? <laughs> um, it's a romantic fantasy, but I will say that as little as you can know going into this movie, I feel like the stronger it will be because it is a genuinely weird movie, even while it pushes all these lush 1940s romantic cinema buttons. Joseph Cotton's wonderful in it. Jennifer Jones is so beautiful in it and her performance is fantastic um, especially as she handles I will just say that she kind of manages the supernatural elements and the, the things that she's required to do as a result the other thing that makes it so satisfying is you know it was a massive flop in part because it had a huge budget and you can see it on the screen almost all the exteriors are shot on location in Central Park um, and elsewhere. Um, it really felt like I had just caught something that had fallen through the cracks of history. And it was such a delight. It, it's on Blu-ray. I will admit that I watched it on for free on YouTube. And it is a like a pristine copy that, that happens to be hanging out there at the moment. It's not a perfect movie, but it was a, a nearly perfect experience. Just click on a movie on your screen and be swept away. Loved it. Nate, have you read the book West of Eden? I have not. I think you should read it. It's It's... By Jean Stein, who, you know, was this book uh, editor, and she edited uh, the um, the oral history of Edie Sedgwick years ago. Oh, mm-hmm. And then this is, was this book that she published a couple years before she died. So it, maybe it's five years old, but it's basically an oral history of four Los Angeles families. And yeah. Jennifer Jones's story plays a big part of it. And I really love it. It's kind of my dream to, like, option it and do a four-season TV show of West of Eden. But Ooh. You should definitely get into it. Am I right, though? Is there some massive cult among classic movie buffs, or is it actually a little bit of a forgotten classic? It's more obscure than you you might think. I mean, it's when you were like, yeah, the classic movie buffs are going to get on me. I thought you were going to say, like, I just discovered Citizen Kane. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. It's oh, not okay. like, it's not like, have you guys heard about Vertigo? Um, but like, if you know, you know. How about you, Karina? So I don't really have like a great classic film discovery this week. Um, We've continued to use the randomizer, which for Uh people who don't know is this uh, innovation my husband and I have come up with to uh, avoid having to make decisions about movies that we watch. We have a very long list of movies added into this app. And then at night, we just press the button that says randomize, and it tells us what we're going to watch. That's that's a great idea. Is the app actually called randomizer or some other app? I don't I don't know what the app is called because it's on my husband's phone, but I will find out and we can maybe like put it in the show notes. You should because that'll save us an hour of discussion every night about what we're going to watch. This is the second time you've mentioned it, and I still feel like I, I would rather just picture that you and Ryan were drawing from some majestic hat. Like there's something about the randomizer that I feel like is off brand for you. We do have like a really big punch <laughs> bowl. So maybe we should be using that. I don't know. It's supposed to kind of make our, our evenings easier and with less conflict. But 
what has happened over the past week is that it has produced movies that have revealed major taste differences between my husband and I. Uh-huh. And so I like Tony Scott's The Hunger. I'm really into that aesthetic. Ryan does not. He really likes Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. We watched that and it made me really, it really crystallized for me the extent to which I don't like Christopher Nolan's aesthetic. Sure. Well, I mean, we obviously knew that we had different tastes, but quarantine and the randomizer is revealing <laughs> new things. Let's dive into uh, three women. Karina, kick us off. Place this movie in time. Robert Altman, who directed this film, had a massive hit in 1970 with MASH. And after that, he pretty consistently for a while alternated making movies with big stars and then not doing that at all. And then sometimes like he'd put the big stars in super conceptual films. So he'd do McCabe and Mrs. Miller with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, and then he'd make images. Um, Three Women came out right after a film called Buffalo Bill and the Indians, which was one of the big star movies. It starred Paul Newman and Burt Lancaster. But again, it just it was more more unconventional and it wasn't a box office hit at all. So at that point, no studio wanted to work with Altman. Hmm. Um, And he somehow managed to make this deal with Fox that would last for five films. Three Women was the first of the five consecutive films that he would make at Fox. And this was at the exact time that the same studio was making the first three Star Wars movies. And yet somehow Altman was allowed to crank out movies like Three Women and Quintet and Health. Um, And all five of these Altman movies are pretty obscure today. I mean, this is kind of this period where he managed to go as long as he ever went without making something that was a mainstream hit. None of them were big money makers. And the streak finally ended with Popeye, which he did not make for Fox. He made it for Paramount in 1980. So he got to do this run at Fox because of Alan Ladd Jr., who is the main executive at Fox. He also greenlit Star Wars. And he didn't start working with Altman because, you know, he thought that Altman's movies were going to make money. They had just known each other for years. And so when Altman called him up and told him about a short story that he wanted to option, Ladd agreed to do it if Altman could guarantee that the option would come cheap and that the movie would come in under budget. And what Altman didn't tell Ladd until the movie was debuting at Cannes was that there had never been a short story and that actually the film was inspired by a dream Altman had had in which he was making a movie starring Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall. (laughs) I came into watching Three Women definitely expecting the Altman of MASH and Nashville and The Player. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Like, I wouldn't have even guessed if you asked me that he was doing avant-garde kind of films. It just seemed so out of left field and, and looking at the movies that came in between, like coming right off of Nashville, was so fascinating to me that he came out. It kind of makes sense that it came out of a dream because it feels outside of his normal oeuvre. Can I use the word oeuvre? <laughs> Without all of us vomiting? If you can pronounce it, you can use it. I can barely pronounce it. <laughs> Wait, but you're from Montreal. I feel like you should. I, you know. I feel like that came out of like a grade five class or something. Just came out of my throat without any control over that. I was aware of this as sort of like one of the deep cut cult movies and had this vague notion that it was Bergman inspired. And there's something even in the name that has this kind of like stately 
Bergman-like declaration of purpose. It's three women. Uh, I was expecting to be this very interior kind of mood piece, and I did not realize the kind of surreal avant-garde movie I was strapping in for. I did. Sure. (laughs) Because um, I tried to watch this. I realized once I actually watched it with you guys that I had tried to watch it once. I, nobody seems to believe me about this, but I swear to God, in like 2009 slash 2010, there was a lot of weird shit streaming on Netflix. Uh-huh. And this was one of those movies that was just on Netflix for no reason. And I remember putting it on like three or four times <laughs> when I lived alone and I would watch movies on my laptop in bed. And I never got past the opening credits. I would just fall asleep. <laughs> so I knew from the opening credits that the movie was, you know, kind of going to be like this. What surprised me was how funny it is. It's kind of a buddy comedy. Absolutely. I just, I'm obsessed with Millie Lamoureux. I thought, I was like, (laughs) Shelley Duval. Oh my God. She's so funny. That cafeteria scene. Say, there's a pool where I live and I don't have a roommate anymore. So why don't y'all come over for dinner one night? We could play a great game of Scrabble. You know, I've got Dr. this new Foster, recipe I've been wanting to try out. It's called pinhouse Dr. chicken. Foster, you make it with a can of tomato soup. It takes a whole hour to cook, but believe me, it's worth it. <laughs> I mean, I just was laughing that whole time. And you're right, it is this like weird buddy film with these two women. That's the Altman thread for me, is that, that comedy that threads through. Or every time like she walks by Tom, she's like, Oh, hi, hi Tom. Tom. How's your cold? And then he ignores her. I'm just like <laughs> delighted by her. Tom is one of the great silent characters. <laughs> I'm perfectly down to watch an avant-garde movie, but there is a, like a strain of avant-garde movie that I tend to really not connect to. And I and I am not a big fan of movies that uh, hinge upon dream logic. And it's not that I don't like working for something and trying to crack the code. It's often when I do kind of crack the code, I'm not sure that there's much there there. I think it's just because fundamentally... Um, I don't know that I find much value in sort of like turning toward Freudianism as a way to describe the people's inner lives or the way that they interact with each other. So if I had actually read a deep description of what I was sort of in store for, I would have, uh, you know, kept my eyes cocked to get ready to start rolling. But I was totally sucked in and so much of it has to do with Shelley Duvall. I completely agree. There's just magic in her on screen and to have her be the center of this surreal dreamscape of a movie was so magnetic. Isn't it crazy that she wasn't really a movie star? At this point, she had only been in Robert Altman movies. That's crazy. I think in part because she is so arresting and simply because no one has ever looked like her on screen. She's just this bizarrely strange and strangely beautiful and there's no other screen presence like her, like literally. And because she is in a couple of sort of, you know, uh, I mean, maybe it's simply The Shining, but sort of truly iconic roles with, you know, whether it's, you know, being a kid and seeing Popeye and and couldn't imagine someone better prepared to play Olive Oil. Um, And then having Mm -hmm. her be in The Shining, my sense of her was that she must have been in a million movies, um, which sort of simply isn't the case. Like at no point is she actually a movie star. And what about Sissy Spacek? She's so young in this movie. Is this one of her earliest films? So she actually wasn't that young. She looks like she's 13. I know. But she was like 27 or 28. What? Um, (laughs) I I know. It's incredible. On on YouTube, um, there is a video from a French TV, uh, it's filmed poolside, you know, during the Cannes Film Festival when this debuts. So it's 1977. And she's uh, being interviewed about her role. 
in a kind of fantastic little turn, a Charlotte Rampling is her translator. <laughs> They're both sort of gorgeous sitting poolside. She reveals that she's 27. And this is just a year after Carrie. Yeah, she had just been in Carrie and she had already been in Badlands. Um, and then like I, two years later, I think she would do Coal Miner's Daughter and she'd win her Oscar for that. But she was definitely the bigger star in this movie. You know, she was she was the person who moviegoers might have known if they had gone to the movie, which they did not. <laughs> did the, was this movie a hit or was it just a critical darling? It was not even really an American critical darling. I mean, it was internationally extremely well received, but it the distributor was just kind of like, what is this? And then I don't think it even really got a full nationwide release. Yeah, because Shelley Duvall won Best Actress at oh, but yeah. for this. I think Sissy Spacek won the New York Film Critics Circle Award. But that was hmm. the biggest of a splash that it made in America. It's a hard role. Not only is she playing this strange childlike woman, um, a lot of which is just translated by gazes and these kind of like looks of adoration she gives to Millie. The turn that she makes post-coma. Totally. Um, yeah. It's an entirely different character. It's really something. To I see. love her post-coma. Oh, when so she's much. shooting at the rain at the at that. <laughs> All right, Pinky, how come you stole my car? Pinky! I didn't steal your car. I borrowed it. You did not. You didn't even ask. Couldn't find you. You didn't try very hard. I tried hard. You did not. You could at least told Doris or Alcera or somebody. Who took you there to go in and get my keys? Tom. Pinky, I had to call the police and everything. They're sitting in there right now waiting on me. They think somebody stole my car. They're sitting in there, huh? Well, aren't you the lucky one? It's also taken on attributes of Millie. So I felt like I, I guess for me, my way in was Millie because Pinky, you know, Sissy Space's character becomes such a different character after the accident, after a coma, couldn't find my way into her. But I was so with Millie the whole time, like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> From the very beginning, there's the, the sort of atonal kind of discordant flute and everything. And you have the strangeness of the murals. And on the one hand, there's a lot to announce that, oh, this is that kind of movie. Once they're in the pool, frankly, that beautiful set of opening shots, I found the specificity of the world of the spa entirely entrancing. And, and you learn it in such detail. Like, I feel like I could go and work there right now. <laughs> I also feel like I could get a job at the Desert Springs Spa. Okay, suppose you got Mr. Shaw and it says on his card, uh, mineral pool and rest. Well, you get him to into the water right away. 10 minutes is the max though, like it says over there on that wall. Then you get him out and wrap him up and put him on a chaise lounge. And he's gotta stay there for at least 20 minutes before he can go back in. The normal world is so surreal. It's the perfect setting for this otherwise bizarre tale. What did you two make of the murals in the opening shot? So I was very fascinated by Willie and her artwork and the murals in the bottom of the pool. But I didn't know quite what, what the symbolism was meant to be. I didn't, I guess I didn't try to unpack it too much. I just sort of enjoyed it aesthetically. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Like this is, this is very much like, uh, like there's something that felt so of its time and so of a piece the 70s is just filled with like cults and est and carlos castaneda books <laughs> and and all this sort <laughs> of like searching you know around these er symbols you know if anything i was kind of like oh, a little bit less of that 
but at the same time, like arresting. And, and I did like that they were sort of like additively disturbing. Like in the beginning, it just sort of felt like, oh, this is an artistic recluse doing some street art. But as things sort of go on and they seem to, you know, connect more to the story, whether it's her pregnancy or or whether it's sort of suggested some sort of like cause and effect or some representation of what's going on the screen. I'm sure that there's a lot to unpack, but at no point did I feel kind of compelled to do it, I guess. I think the music was so interesting to me because even when he was playing the comedy, just from the comedy, the spa of Millie, the music always had this like discordant, very tense kind of score even from the get-go before you kind of get to the very sort of haunting or or scary part of the movie, which I thought was an interesting um, contrast with the comedic scenes at the beginning. No, absolutely. I mean, the truth of the matter is if you put a different score or you have no score, you know, suddenly the twins are just goofy. Mm-hmm. But the twins are completely creepy. What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen twins before? Everything is so clearly layered, you know, in a way that even if you can't unpack the layers, it's just... You have Millie and then you have Willie, Pinky and Peggy and Polly. Everything sort of seems so loaded. It's kind of delightful to have this movie that is clearly operating on this symbolic level and chasing something that is very idiosyncratic and very specific. To have it sort of be in the trappings of this very amusing and delightful and well-observed day-to-day um, was such an interesting and like and compelling mix. I didn't really understand why everyone was always ignoring Millie because she's she's definitely a chatterbox and she doesn't stop talking and maybe that's why. But the way that she would walk behind them speaking and no one would even mm-hmm. turn back or nod or grunt. They would all just continue their conversation. The words just went to Hawaii on a real ocean line, like the kind you see on the Late Show. They brought me a whole pamphlet full of color pictures. They had a lay for me too. But... It wilted by the time they got here. It's all so colorful and exotic. Everything from the sky at sunset to the Hilton Hotel. It's too hot there. Someday I'm going to go there. A boyfriend of mine used to live there. He even dated a hula dancer. You wouldn't believe some of those stories I've heard about those hula dancers. They're real exotic, too. You can take hula dancing lessons now down at Macy's Salon of Dance. I might do it. I like it. It's only $12. I think it's sexy. I didn't understand why I found her so delightful, but everyone around her seemed to ignore her all the time. I was like, why? She's trying to make conversation. She's got cool recipes. I think that's kind of the journey of the film because like when pretty early on when Sissy SpaceX character is like, I think you're a perfect person. I think you are supposed to, at that point, be seeing her through Sissy SpaceX eyes where you're like, oh, this cosmopolitan lady who smokes cigarettes, what would she want to do with this child? But then, you know, you really have to spend enough time with Millie to understand why everybody else around her doesn't want her around. What is the thing you think about uh, when you think about Altman? It's likely, you know, overlapping dialogue and sort of thing. But here, the, the overlapping dialogue works so well, in part because it doesn't just kind of center you in the world of that strange world of the clinic, um, but it also makes the clinic seem super sinister. Like there's cl- like clearly someone has died in their watch recently, <laughs> and yeah, the doctor is totally preoccupied with this with some you know possible lawsuit and making sure that their malpractice insurance you know is going on. The woman who runs the office doesn't just kind of like have a stick up her butt. Like you feel like she's under incredible pressure that is outsized for the job that she seems to have. But what it kind of adds up to do, um, particularly here, like I, I almost can can barely think of one of his movies where it is so additive 
is you just have the sense of like everyone has their own lives and the thing that they clearly do not center around is Millie. You know, (laughs) Millie wants people's attention, wants people's affection, wants men's attraction. But over and over and over again, like, you know, people just have like other shit they got to get done. Um, I really loved it. I thought it worked so well. I think he really captured how isolating it is to be a single woman coming out. You know, she came from Texas out to California not knowing anyone and not having family and how lonely that can be. I mean, I think I really yeah. felt that. Was so, and, and why should the fact that she and Pinky are both from Texas, even though they're not from the same city in Texas is big enough to be its own country, like immediately bonds them. Just, just how lonely coming out here where, where, especially back in the seventies, you know, people were mostly transplants and didn't have generations of ties out here. And you just really thought he captured that so well with her, constantly being alone and ignored, even in her apartment complex, which should feel like a community. And I love how she keeps turning to all of the sort of trappings of kind of like bourgeois success. She's learning these things in McCall's. You know, she has these yoga poses pinned up from People magazine or whatever. She's constantly, you know, trying to kind of like better herself and become, you know, a hostess worthy of people's, you know, company and, you know, a, a woman, you know, worthy of men's attention. It's wonderful the way you see how aggressive that project is and yet how miserably it's failing. It really is only until she invites kind of Edgar into her bedroom, kind of has to like contend with Pinky's irritation and kind of like repulsion. You know, you see just sort of like how close to the emotional edge she is. I think we ought to have Pinky join us in the fun, huh? I mean, two. Come on, Edgar. Three. Not one word. What do you know about anything? Don't. What about Willie? I know all about Willie. Don't. Why don't you mind your own business for a change? This has nothing to do with you. Ever since you moved in here, you've been causing me grief. Nobody wants to hang around you. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do anything you're supposed to do. Well, I'll tell you what. If you don't like the way I intend to live around here, why don't you just move out? What do we think's happening here? Like, what's what's your take, Karina? What, what what do you think Three Women is like ultimately about? What is it going for? Wacky shit happens in comas, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think there's something really interesting about the way that identity can get scrambled. That that's sort of one one aspect of what I think is going on. And then what fascinates me a little bit more than like what happens to Pinky to change her personality is this kind of ellipsis after the stillborn birth. And then it seems like there's kind of a time jump of of some length, you know, at least like a week or so. And then Edgar's dead. <laughs> um, you know, it's like I assume that this is some kind of there was some kind of revenge killing, you know, that one one two three of the women <laughs> perpetrated. Um, right. And you know, it's it's very exciting to me when movies will do something like that where something that would be absolutely a conventional plot element um, in a typical film is just absolutely alighted. And so because what's important is not the action of the killing. What's important is sort of the emotional build up to it and the way it resolves for these women's lives. What do you think it meant when Willie said, I had a dream at the end? Because when I read that Altman had a dream that inspired the film. There was a small part of, I mean, I was definitely the person at the end of the film. Well, I'm usually this person who's like, wait, what? How much time has passed? What was that? a dream? Was that you're saying the whole thing was a dream or she had a dream? 
why are they on this? Like, I'm the one who has like a thousand questions. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, what did she, what was that line? Um, I thought, you know, I, this was like sort of eye roll time for me about, uh, I had the strangest dream moment. Um, and I kind of took it as, as Willie, excuse me, it's difficult to keep my, uh, my M and my W straight. As Willie, the artist, you know, painting her sort of opaque vision as perhaps a stand-in for Altman and the merger of you know, the artist on screen and the artist behind the camera, etc. Not to a point to which I actually cared all that much, but it felt like there was something in that going on. From what I do remember from my sort of Freudian analysis or whatever, <laughs> it is kind of remarkable that this movie is called Three Women because it is clearly, you know, as we said, it's a buddy comedy. The third woman is such a strange presence and only becomes at all central until the very end. So I assume that on some level, this is some, there's some interpretation in there about... Um, well, they're actually all the same woman. They are the same woman at different stages in their lives. There's the young virgin and the sophisticated single woman, and there's the mother. And I assume that there's some, you know, symbolic something or other going on uh, in, with all the reversals and, and whatnot. Or maybe Willie is the most important woman because the whole thing is her dream. Yeah, perhaps That's so. what I was wondering, because honestly, the first five minutes, I thought the twins were the third woman. And it really <laughs> was, took me a while to realize <laughs> Willie was the third woman. I'm like, okay. So I was wondering the whole movie, why is Willie the third woman? This feels like this movie should be called Two Women. So I think, Karina, you might be right. Do you guys know this, like, sort of late Peter Greenaway movie called Eight and a Half Women? No, I've never no. seen that. Movie. So the thing that's, about that's that, like, that movie has, like, a couple of good things in it, but it's pretty stupid. And the thing that's the stupidest about it is that there are literally eight and a half women. Like, it basically woman? spends the whole movie, like, counting down. Like, oh, now we have six. Now we have seven. <laughs> now we have eight. Now we have eight and a half. And <laughs> so I, I, I'm i very happy <laughs> to watch a movie where it's not as literal. Or it stops like, at three. You actually have to think about, you know, the this idea of what does this title mean and what is it referring to? And is it literal? Is it oblique? You know, what's going on here? I have to think also, like, there's something about mother and these, like, the way the three of them are on the yeah. bench on the porch at the end. And, so, and Willie suddenly seems to have gray hair and Pinky has been reduced to, like, some regressed child. And it, it does seem like the developmental stages of womanhood or something, even though these right. women are closer in age. And something and and their relationships by the end, you know, Millie is mother to Pinky. Willie is mother to Millie like that. They were these young, you know, nubile women at the beginning. And now they they're etched in these uh, motherly roles. And also when the parents show up uh, <laughs> looking like Ma and Pa Jode. <laughs> Can we discuss the parents for a second? <laughs> Was that ever resolved? Why they thought they were Pinky's parents? Like, no, it, I, I might. Perhaps they are, but perhaps you know, perhaps actually they are. They are Willie's parents. You know, like I don't necessarily think that it's like a pure. Um, she called the wrong people. They act, you know, as though, yeah, don't you recognize us? We are your parents. They, they're not like, oh, oh wait, now that we get a glimpse at her, we don't recognize this young girl. That, that feels very much, uh, you know, with dream logic to me. I mean, I. I have a like a very specific situation with my mother, but like I've had many, many dreams, like recurring dreams over the course of my life where my mom's there and I'm like, like, I refuse to acknowledge that it's her. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Just to add one more thing to the discussion of sort of psychoanalysis and Freudianism, um, I read this funny quote from Sissy Spacek that I think she probably gave when the movie was premiering at Cannes where she was like, like, Shelley told me that the three of us are the id, the ego, and the superego, but I don't know what any of that means. <laughs>
That's even funnier quote, knowing now that she was 27 when she said that and not 19. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. Like she has to get into character for Coal Miner's daughter and Coal Miner's daughter cannot know what the superego is. <laughs> Who's Freud? What's happening? So tell me, folks, was this a good movie to watch right now? What do you think, Davi? I say yes, because it really took me out of where we are today. There was, it was so detached from reality um, that I really got sucked into it. If you're living in California, especially, I think it's a great film to watch because it really captures, for me, like the desert of California in the 70s. There was something beautifully drawn. And I think that's a nice sort of way to think about California right now. I don't know that this, I mean, this movie is clearly not for everyone. And I'm not even going to go as far to say that it is the movie for me. But if you want to like go down a rabbit hole and emerge into a world that is like a whole lot like ours, but not, um, then totally. Like I, 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 I've been surprised, you know, watched it a couple nights ago and I've, I've been surprised by how much it's kind of hung with me. And uh, I, really, I really kind of expect it's going to be kind of rolling around in my head um, and I might be kind of unpacking it for a long time to come. And that always feels valuable. Well, it's funny you say that, Nate, because I also watched it a couple of nights ago. And I think right after I watched it, I would have said, nah, don't bother. But it stayed with me. And yeah. I think like for the scene alone of Millie coming down the stairs to the pool and them saying, here comes the early modern Millie. Like that feels like <laughs> it alone to see the film. And that amazing yellow robe. I think it's absolutely a great movie to watch right now um, for slightly different reasons, because I think I maybe found it a lot more entertaining than you guys. Um, I swear to God, this is the funniest thing I've seen since two weeks ago when I watched Bowfinger. Um, and also, as Davi said, there's sort of like 70s desert porn, and but also 70s dinner party porn. Those are the, yes. the biggest pigs and blankets I've ever seen. All of that's pretty great. Also, like the weird, like rancho bar porn. Like I keep using the word porn, but I really would love to just drive out to a desert and go to a weird bar. Ride on a dirt bike in the back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a, a real vibe that I'm feeling right now. And and as I said, I just I really found it so funny and so entertaining. And it's yeah. such a thrill to watch something that is provocative on an idea level, but is also just like makes you laugh out loud, which it did for me. Yeah, I think you totally nailed it. That's yeah, to, that. to have something that feels like, um, seems like old times, <laughs> that is also just like, like, you know, run through some surreal drug trip uh, movie was great. Is it time to play a game? Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to play like a really classic game that Nate is familiar with, and it's called Box Office Top 5. And I thought Ooh. this would be an interesting one for to do with Robert Altman's filmography because he actually like had a lot of hits, but they're just not all concentrated in one part of his career. What we're going to do is we're going to try to count down his top five highest grossing films. This is not adjusted for inflation because you can't get those numbers anymore on Box Office Mojo. So it's just Sad. the top five based on pure numbers. And mm -hmm. we'll start with number one and go to number five. And I want to start with number one because I think it's probably the easiest one. It's a film we've already talked about. So what do you think is Robert Altman's biggest grossing film ever? I think Smash. he... Yeah, I oh. think he never gets to make something like like Three Women if MASH isn't like a mega yeah. hit. Correct. MASH made $82 million in 1970. Wow, that is a huge hit. That's a lot of money. So what's number two? Uh, Popeye 
you know, is sort of like a famous flop, but I don't think it actually was that big of a flop. I just think it was supposed to be some mega hit and I think it did fine. Um, and so I think that if you have like a property, you know, if you're, if you're coming from the, whatever the, it is, the Popeye expanded universe, um, I think that there's an inherent, you know, I mean, I went to see it and I was like five. So, uh, I bet, uh, I'm going to go with Popeye. What do you think? I think yeah. it might be the player. Player did pretty well. I, oh, I'll go with Pop. I'll come over to your side. You so? I, if All I had right. a guess, I'm not good at trivia, so I'm going to go with Nate Popeye. Okay, that is correct. Popeye oh, made. I'm so glad I went with Nate. <laughs> Popeye made fifty million dollars in 1980. What do you think okay. is number three? I think I think you're right that I think the player did pretty well. Right, it was a commercial success. I think it sort of was, and I also think it was at a time in which, like, a glory time when people would go to see a movie like The Player. Unless, what do you think about Gosford Park? Is it possible that I think Gosford Park did well? I think it might have even done a little bit better. I'm not sure. I think those. I think those might be our four and five. I think that something like Nashville won like a a bunch of Academy Awards. Was it? But was it a box office hit? I mean, that's. I mean, I hope Nashville did really well. I think that if we're going to round at the top five, I think we got. I think Nashville's in there. I think the player probably is in there. I think Gosford Park's probably in there, and I bet. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller did pretty well, and that's like in definitely in like the top eight. So, oh, which one yeah. do you think? Which one do you think next? Let's go with Nashville. That's an aspirational guess. I hope it's Nashville. Uh, that is incorrect. Ugh. Nashville is not in the top five. Oh, wow! It's not. And the number three film is Gosford Park, which made forty-one million in two thousand one. Forty-one million is what we need to what we need to break. Forty-one um, million. So that's three. I think let's let's roll the dice of the player. Let's see if yeah, there's a let's say the player for four. Correct. The player hey. made twenty-two million dollars in nineteen ninety-two. The final Not film, bad. the fifth highest grossing film, is the last one that you guys need to guess. And I gotta tell you, you haven't said the name of it yet. Oh. Do you think it's shortcuts? Oh, that's in- that's interesting. Or the long goodbye could have been the long. That was a real prime time for Elliot Gould. I feel like he could open a movie then. Let's go with the let's go with the long goodbye. He was huge back then. Yeah, <laughs> he was huge back then, and that answer is incorrect. Um, <laughs> oh, I know. Wait, wait, a Prairie Home Companion did a Prairie Home Companion do well? I don't correct. think it did shortcuts money. It was. Yeah! <laughs> It was God, a Prairie man. Home Companion, which favorite, made okay. it made twenty million in two thousand six. You guys got to remember that uh, Meryl Streep was in it and Lindsay Lohan was in it at a time when That's Lindsay right. Lohan was a big and celebrity. Lily Tomlin, guys, how did we miss that? I have such an aversion to a Prairie Home Companion as just a concept that I feel like you would have had to pay me twenty point <laughs> six million dollars just to see it in two thousand six. <laughs> Davi. Can you shout out and tell us about some beloved independent movie theater that's near and dear to your heart as we uh, try to raise money uh, to help them stay afloat? Yes. Um, I would love to talk about a theater that is not only near and dear to my heart, it's actually near and dear to my house. <laughs> so like, we go there a lot. And that's the Arrow Theater Great. in Santa Monica. Um, you know, I'd never seen Singing in the Rain. I just moved to L.A. and... I really wanted to see it on a big screen. I didn't want to see it on a small screen. And that was my first film at Arrow. And I think actually the someone connected to the film actually came to speak to us. They'll, they'll bring in like the child of the director or the screenwriter themselves. Sometimes David Mamet pops in to talk about his films. There's just something so homey and so incredible about this theater. It's very, it's not very big. They have incredible programming. They do these double headers that are amazing. Um, we saw his girl Friday there last year on Valentine's day. Um, 
it's just a treat. There's a great little restaurant bar across the street called R&D where you can get something to drink beforehand. And I would love to support this amazing theater. Here's the part of the episode when we turn to you to help keep those places we miss going to so much right now alive. We want you to donate right now. Go right now to the Art House America fundraiser a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films and a nonprofit called Art House Convergence. They are raising $500,000 to get much needed help to all those theaters and film societies and screening series that we love. You can find a link in the show notes to this episode and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. Let's check in with next week's guest, Lindsay Weber, a culture writer and one of the hosts of the hilarious and ridiculous and brilliant Who Weekly a podcast about all those peripheral celebrities. You're not entirely sure who they are. Hey, Nate and Karina. I'm watching The Sopranos for the first time, and I've realized that I've missed so much of Italian mob cinema, right? And that includes so much Scorsese. And I feel like you need to watch Scorsese to be, like, literally a person in this world. So I was hoping you guys might be interested in watching Casino with me. I've never seen it, but I hear it's pretty good. So watch Casino. And join the three of us next episode. Meanwhile, how about you subscribe to my other podcast, The Memory Palace? Or Karina's Brilliant, You Must Remember This. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. You can follow me at Karina Longworth. Oh, and you can shoot us an email at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. Talk to you folks next time. <laughs>